Hello to everyone tuning into the Highly Optimized Podcast today. My name is Ryan Sprague, and throughout this podcast, I will be showcasing individuals who are living a life beat to their own drum, sharing their stories, and revealing their valuable information for each one of you listeners on how you can effectively take life into your own control, what steps to take to create your own path, and how to maximize your results in manifesting your dreams in this reality. Our guest today on the podcast is a man who is no stranger to hard work, especially in regards to the cannabis movement. His mission is to legalize cannabis across the globe in order to assist individuals with affordable, safe access to the amazing healing benefits of the plant. Being a 30-year veteran of the fight for legalization, he has been an integral player in the process of destigmatizing cannabis by working to change laws, including assisting in Prop 215 and Prop 64, which legalized cannabis in California, starting a variety of cannabis companies, as well as using his voice to share the amazing stories of individuals whose lives have been helped by cannabis. Not only this, but he is also a pioneer in the realm of expungement, having co-founded The Last Prisoner Project, which seeks to bring restorative justice to the cannabis community. Please help me in welcoming the co-founder of one of the most recognized dispensaries in the country, Harborside, which now has four locations, a man who truly says what he means and means what he says, and someone who has been a huge inspiration for me as a fellow cannabis enthusiast, Andrew D'Angelo. Well, Ryan, thanks for that amazing introduction. Absolutely, man. Absolutely, man. I had to make one that was, you know, gracious enough to, you know, fit you. I mean, you've done so much in the industry, and I've been watching you for a long time, so it's a pleasure to have you on. Well, it's great to be with you today. Yeah, thank you. And, um, you know, I thought we could, you know, start out by maybe you giving some background info on how you got into cannabis and some further details in your fight for cannabis legalization. Sure. Well, most people probably uh, know my older brother, Steve D'Angelo, very well. Yeah. He's known as <laughs> known as the <laughs> father of the legal cannabis industry. Um, and I've been, Steve and I have been working on cannabis together all of our adult lives. I, I, I took my first joint when I was 15 years old. Uh, at that time in my life, I was an athlete and I was injured. Um, my older brother said, take this, it'll make you feel better. And not only did the joint make my pain, physical pain, feel better, it uh, opened up my mind and my heart and my spirit in ways that I didn't expect and very profound ways that sort of made me decide as a very young man that I was going to walk the cannabis trail and the cannabis path. I was going to do everything I could to sell cannabis, enjoy cannabis, spread the seed that will save the planet, not get caught doing it and (laughs) um, try to try to change the laws as fast as we can because I, I hated living, um, uh, the life underground. I did not like being a criminal. It's not a, it's not a good way to live. So that made me an activist. And that's what Steve and I did for a long, long time. We, we had to work to change laws. It wasn't until 1996, 1997. Um, and that was already 15 years into my career before we were able to change our first law in California uh, with Prop 215. Uh, that has created a snowball effect to this day, and and now here we are with what is it now? Thirty three states yes. uh, with some kind of uh, <laughs> thirty three strong, uh, yeah, yeah. laws and 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 you, quite a few with adult use. And the whole world is changing. Mexico is going to legalize this year. Canada legalized. Yes. Um. And uh, I I think 
we can still say we're at the beginning of all that, uh, despite the fact that I'm 37 years into this. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so awesome. In a very similar way. I mean, I used my first you know cannabis uh, method when I was 15. I smoked my first joint and. Very similar to you, you know, I had physical relief from injuries I was going through from athletic, you know, um, uh, you know, just different things I was doing, but also it made my mind feel a different way than I'd ever felt before. And I had struggled with anxiety for so long and really didn't even know how to encapsulate what anxiety was at that point. But it wasn't until I first used cannabis that I realized like, wow, my mind's a lot quieter. And, you know, I think I'm kind of happier when my mind's a little quieter. So it was a, it was a funny way to start. But, you know, since then, I've, you know, I'm very similar to you. I've just dedicated my life to making this plant more available because, you know, I've seen, you know, like I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I've seen countless people that have been helped with a myriad of different issues, um, all with cannabis, you know, and, so I know you went into a little bit, but what was the cannabis scene like in California before Prop 215, and how did that movement help to establish cannabis culture and cannabis business in California and eventually across the whole country? Well, the, the cannabis subculture, um, or cannabis culture, I guess you could say, started in earnest during the jazz age um and and not so much in california although it did eventually work its way here but it started more in chicago and new york new orleans um when uh, black and brown people brought cannabis to north america either fleeing mexico and the revolution at the turn of the century or um, from jamaica um and those were sort of the two entry points for for psychoactive cannabis to come and cannabis medicine to come into the united states the beatniks and the hippies uh really made cannabis a california commodity uh, not just culturally but also as uh, as a a crop uh and and a and a product and a medicine and something that people were making a living uh, at even though it was illicit in those days, um, there was a, a huge movement of hippies that left the city and went out into the country in California, uh, and a variety of other uh, misfits and 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 folks that didn't feel comfortable being in the city or or didn't feel comfortable in mainstream society, and 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 they took to the countryside. Some of them formed communes. Some some of them did not, but they all tended to farm cannabis in one way or another and over the years and decades got better and better at it and more and more obsessed with it and passed that down to their kids and their kids passed it down to their kids and uh, and then we had of course the cultural explosions of the uh, in the 60s with rock and roll music and 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 that brought cannabis out into the world in a in a, in a much different way and of course our african-american Brothers and sisters have been using cannabis all through the jazz age and all through the the uh, soul and R and B age, um, and and now starting to get into the hip hop and rap age uh, in the in the seventies and eighties and and early nineties. It was really the crisis, the AIDS crisis, and the work of Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary out in San Francisco in the late eighties that moved the needle for cannabis law reform. Up until that point, we would heroically put things on ballot initiatives and then get slaughtered at the ballot box. We'd be yeah. lucky to get, you know, 20% of the vote. We'd be like, oh, my God, we got 20% got 20. this year. Woo! Um, uh, but then Dennis, he figured out, hey, you know what? 
um, we can make a connection with voters um, um, with empathy. And so he started to put very sick people in front of cameras and they started to tell their story. And then the public began to understand that cannabis very slowly (laughs) began to understand uh, that cannabis was good, not bad. And that's really when the rebranding of cannabis started was when Dennis started putting very sick people in front of cameras out here in Cal- in the Bay Area. And yeah. um, and since then, you know, whether it be AIDS patients or whether it be kids with epilepsy or whether it be our elders um, suffering any number of, of ailments that occur when you age, cannabis is starting to help all those communities too and those stories have been told uh and those folks have gotten in front of cameras and now you know our movement has grown and the rebranding of cannabis is at least uh, in the minds of the public um pretty darn close to being done um i think um we still maybe have some distance to go in america certainly Globally, we have a long way to go, particularly mm-hmm. in Asia. Uh, yeah, but, um, you know, my goal by the end of my life and is that, you know, the whole world is going to understand that cannabis is good, not bad. And we don't need to be afraid of it. Lord knows we don't need to tax it to death either. Um, and we can just let it be a good thing in the world um, and and do our best to mitigate any harms that might come from it, making sure certain folks uh, that may not be able to control their use uh, have help mm-hmm. when that happens. Um, but, you know, just let the plant do what it's done uh, for a long time, which has been a healing friend of the people, the regular people, the everyday people, the working class people, uh, and the poor. So that's what I hope. And I think we're well on our way, right? Absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that we're finally starting to really see a shift where a lot of cognitive dissonance is leaving a lot of people. I mean, you know, I know at the dispensary I work at, the biggest age group is 50 to 70, which is amazing, you know, and these people are so excited because a lot of them, you know, used cannabis back in the day. And now they're getting more into it because they have achy joints and a whole myriad of health issues. And it's just, it's amazing to see, you know, because I think that just like you said, this plant is so amazing and it was never the demonized thing that people made it out to be, you know, it was all just ridiculous politics that really made it that way back in the day. And the whole marijuana movement was ridiculous. I mean, it's the same plant as cannabis, you know, and just, it was always funny to me. So I'm glad we're also seeing a shift of it, you know, being called cannabis again, because I do think marijuana is a racist term, you know? (laughs) Right. Yes. Well, I think that the word cannabis just sounds better rolling off the tongue, doesn't it? Yes, definitely. Um, and, and it just, it just feels better. I do think that the word marijuana, um, um, while it was used um, for very racist and terrible purposes by Harry J. Anslinger and his army of prohibitionists, um, it also is a, is a term for cannabis, a Mexican term for cannabis. And as I mentioned earlier, if it wasn't for the Mexican people bringing cannabis with them when they were fleeing oppression at the turn of the uh, you know 20th century, 19th, and uh, you know right in the in the beginning of the 20th century, um, 
none of us would be stoners now. <laughs> you're very, you're very right. <laughs> I mean, right? You know, so uh, it, 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 our our cultural heritage with cannabis that we know and love so much it really extends all the way into Mexico, mm-hmm. um, and and all the way into places like Jamaica and all the way back into India um, uh, because the Jamaicans got it from India. That's why the Jamaicans call it ganja. It's an Indian term. Um, it's not a Jamaican term, it's an Indian term. Um, so, uh, it's, it's just this amazing journey that cannabis has had, uh, as a plant, as a, as a, as a tool. Um, you know, the, the Spanish brought it here because that's the only way they could get here is with (laughs) rope and sails made from hemp. And, you know, in those days, it was kind of like, uh, it's kind of like being on a spaceship now. Yeah. You have to bring, you got to bring everything with you you need to get back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so true. It's so or, true. <laughs> right? Or you're not going to get back. Yeah. Um, and, and, and no one wants to be lost in space or lost at sea. Um, so uh, they would bring hemp seeds with them wherever they went in case they got shipwrecked somewhere. They could grow hemp over the course of a summer, harvest it, make ropes and sails out of it, and get the brick back home yeah <laughs> um you know um and 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 so this tool this, this this that cannabis has been hemp has been for us and this friend uh extends even to imperialists uh and um and 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 it's sort of funny how the tragedy um some of the the tragedy is, is wound like a hemp rope with the joy and, and wellness of, of, of the cannabis story. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a long, complex story. And, and I think it's, isn't it great that the seniors are coming into the shops now Absolutely. and feeling, you know, feeling safe and, and, and enthusiastic about that. When we first opened Harborside, seniors are too scared to come, even though we, we created a beautiful space for them to come in. We had to create a whole outreach program and engage with senior nonprofits in the community and rent buses. And, you know, we had to really, really, really work hard to get folks to come in. And now, all these years later, they're, they're coming in on their own and, and, and feeling quite comfortable being in a dispensary. So I'm really glad to hear that that's happening at your shop as well as, as it is at ours. Yeah. And, you know... What was the chain of events that took place that led you and Steve to open Harvest Set? I mean, I know you guys founded Ecolution in 1994, speaking of hemp. Um, you guys made, yep. if I remember correctly, hemp jeans, correct? Right, hemp jeans? Yeah. Yeah. 100% yeah. hemp <laughs> denim jeans. Yeah, yeah. I wish I got some of those. <laughs> um, but what was the chain of events that took place that led you and Steve to open Harborside? Yeah, well, like I mentioned earlier, we didn't like breaking the law. Uh, mm-hmm. So the hemp company was our first legal cannabis company um, that was making legal cannabis products overseas and then importing them. Uh, and, you know, in the late 80s is when Jack Harris booked Emperor Wears No Clothes hit. And that's when we all learned that um, cannabis could be a medicine and it could also be an industrial raw material. And at that time, the movement to legalize cannabis sort of got split a little bit. One camp felt like, well, no, we, we, we ought to do what Dennis is doing out in California and, and, and focus on the medical. And then there was another camp that was like, no, we ought to you know, prove to the world that you can make anything out of hemp. 
um, uh, industrially uh, because, you know, it's not psychoactive and they'll be a lot more open to it. And, and, and we, you know, we can appeal to their greed a lot more because you can scale it um, tremendously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Steve and I had one foot in both camps, um, but we were not living in California and, 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 we knew that California had to legalize first, and then we could maybe bring that same effort to Washington, D.C., but we were too impatient. So <laughs> um, in, in, in 1992, we, we started a company that, 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 that was legal, um, uh, and that was, that was industrial hemp. And then, you know, once you start a company, that was our first, you know, above-board legitimate company. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a couple, we had a couple others that were more creative endeavors, like, music promotion and graphic design but um uh this was really the first serious one and and you know you have to learn a lot about just how to run a a normal business and and we were importing from europe and you know customs would go crazy every time they saw the hemp and um (laughs) and 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 we had to innovate we had to learn how to make denim out of it um no you know all all that we had in the beginning was hemp twine uh, and then we went from hemp twine to hemp canvas, and then we went from hemp canvas to hemp denim, and all of those breakthroughs required, you know, massive amounts of R and D, um, and you know, one failure after another before you finally found the secret sauce. Um, so, so then Prop Two Fifteen happened, and then we said, well, okay, let's bring medical to DC. And we intended to open a harborside in D.C. after we got it passed. Um, and we got it passed in 1998. But what happened was the Republicans were in charge of the United States Congress. And the way Washington, D.C. works is it gets all of its money from the federal government. And the federal government can tell the city what it is allowed to spend money on and what it's not allowed to spend money on. And so the Republicans said, Oh, you legalize medical cannabis? Good job. Guess what? You're not going to get any money to implement that law. Uh, F off. Oh, that's crazy. So that really pissed us off. Yeah, I don't um, Because I don't we're like, come on, man. I passed the law. You, 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 the, the whole Republican line in the 90s was, well, if you don't like the law, change it. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> And so then we changed it. Yeah. And then they would, and then, and, and it wasn't even close. We won by 69% of the vote. I mean, it was God. not even close. Okay. None of those politicians win by that much. Um, uh, and we won by that much. Um, and it was just a perversion of democracy. Um, so we decided to leave. Um, it, you know, our elderly parents were in D.C., that's where we had grown up. So to extract yourself and your family from that situation takes a little bit of time. Um, and um, we had to, my brother got busted during that uh, shortly thereafter. Oh, and man. That didn't help matters. Um, and, and so it took us a few years to get to California. But once we got to California, uh, then um, we could start thinking about um, legal cannabis businesses in California, and we started out growing weed and making hash and selling it to the legal cannabis dispensaries and collectives at that time, uh, and because you couldn't get a license to open a retail shop until 
you know, 05, 04, 05 in Oakland. Uh, Oakland was the first place in the world to uh, pass an ordinance that allowed for licensing of cannabis retail. And that's when uh, particularly my brother Steve uh, realized that that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and we had to uh, basically put all our chips on that on that spot. And uh, so we sold my mom's house, and um, we begged my dad for a loan, and we raised money from everybody we could, and we sold as much weed as we could to raise the money we could, <laughs> and and we 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 opened Harborside in '06. Um, uh, and, um, just scraped it, uh, scrape, uh, you know, very scrappy the way we did it. I mean, we were literally living in the dispensary for a week or two. My brother and his wife were living here because we didn't have a vault. Uh, we didn't have alarms yet. Um, uh, and we had to guard the weed <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Um, that, that, that was sitting in the vault. Um, um, we're in Oakland, you know, and yeah. 05 <laughs> was a little bit different, you know, than it is now. Um, so, so it's a great story, right? Yeah. Um, uh, um, uh, and, 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 and we just had 100% belief that if we open, if we could just get it open, we knew we had a vision for cannabis retail. It was very new at that time. At that time, all the dispensaries had bars on the windows and bulletproof glass. And, you know, they were, they were not, you know, you would never, ever have windows and, and, and big security guards with guns. And, you know, it was like, like that. Yeah. Not um, too friendly looking. Uh, <laughs> it just wasn't. Yeah. What it was just, it was, it was more like a fortress um, uh, then, then, and you had to be, you had to be pretty deep into the culture to feel comfortable going in that the grandmothers and grandfathers, our elders would not feel comfortable going in that, um, environment. So we wanted to create something different and, and, and everybody thought we were crazy because uh, we have big windows, no bars on the windows, everything wide open, display cases, displaying the cannabis, um, celebrating the cannabis, lighting, you know, beige, bamboo, and, you know, very spa-like feel. Um, uh, um, and, you know, I, we wanted people to feel, we wanted people to say, wow, when yeah. they walked in and just go, wow, this is a cannabis dispensary? <laughs> um and that's exactly what happened. Um, my brother and his wife, Yoli, designed the space. They, they did a great job. And, and to this day, people re uh, remark about how lovely the design of our shops are. So um, that's sort of how we bridge that gap. It was, it was it, you know, particularly the bust of my brother in the middle of the hemp company in Harborside was a painful, painful couple of years. Um, that that took to uh, resolve itself. Um, and But, you know, typical in cannabis, if you've been at this a long time, your journey has ups and downs, and, and sometimes there's a couple cages in there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nothing to, good comes easy. <laughs> uh, that, you have to, that you have to hang out in for a little while. Yeah. Um, um, uh, and, and But, you know, we're pioneering the way for – lots of other folks and and you know 20 30 years from now all of this will seem like it's been here forever 
Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I'm, you know, we're already feeling that even out here in Massachusetts, which hasn't nearly had the amount of time that California has had to really implement all this stuff and, you know, go against a lot of the social norms that were, you know, here for years and years. But um, what is, what's been your favorite aspect of running Harborside? I know you probably have a couple, um, but, you know, whether it be like, you know, seeing the look on the patient's faces that come in that are healed or, you know, what have you. Well, of course, the impact we've had on the community is very satisfying. But on a daily basis, uh, being embedded with the team is the most joyful part of this um, and, and, and coaching the team to, to be better and better every day um, and then seeing that happen. Um, all of those things, mentoring others um, and and uh, making sure that what we learned at Harborside, you know, we've been spending the last 10 years taking all over the world in one way or another, either by expanding our own business or helping others expand theirs. Um, and, you know, that's, that's what we'll keep doing. It's, it's, Every the mission of making cannabis legal, safe, affordable to everybody on earth, that mission in and of itself is a very joyful experience for me. Yeah. Um, the pe- the people I get to do that with every day, um, and 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 being able to act as a leader to 250, 300 people, you know, in this organization um, and the wider industry, uh, that is a pretty joyful experience. I had to work very hard and fight a lot of battles to manifest the life I have now in cannabis. Um, and you know, the plant, she's a, she's a demanding plant. Uh, so you got to put in your time, (laughs) but, uh, uh, but, um, if you do that with a pure heart, uh, and solid intentions, you'll find yourself living a life that's joyful and meaningful. Um, you may not be a gazillionaire, and 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 you might have experienced loss and setback uh, on the cannabis trail, but you will have a meaningful life, yeah. and you will know that you're doing something good in the world at a time where the world is desperate for good things to be done. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, I mean, my favorite aspect of being in the industry myself is being a part of something that's bigger than just me, you know, and really working collectively with people that have similar values and share, you know, similar mindsets to create a better tomorrow for future generations to come. And, you know, I know that you're big in creative expression, such as theater and film. How have those really influenced your cannabis career? Because I know, you know, you're big into that kind of stuff, so I wanted to touch on that. Well, I'll tell you, you're the first person who's asked me that question, so good for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, well, I came of age in the 80s, so I graduated high school in 1985, and mm-hmm. as I mentioned, when I was a sophomore in high school, I started to smoke cannabis, and shortly after that first joint experience, um, I took a, a, a theater class in high school, um, um, n- not because I harbored any ambitions um, to do theater at that time, but it just, I had an elective to fill and I wanted to meet girls and, um, I wanted to be around, you know, interesting, funny people. Yeah. Um, uh, so I signed up for this acting class 
And as soon as I got into acting class, I got bit by the acting bug. So I got bit by the cannabis bug, and then shortly thereafter, I got bit by the acting bug. Uh, and uh, in those days, there was no industry you could go work in. There was no dispensary. There was no, you know, so you had to go to college. You had to study something else. And what I decided to study was um, theater and acting uh, because I thought, well, you know, I love weed. I'm going to sell weed in the dorms, and I'm going to I'm going to do this acting thing. And you know, maybe acting could be my day job, and 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 I can sell weed, and you know, maybe I can have a meaningful life. You know, I, yeah. I loved doing theater, and I loved telling stories, and I thought, you know, I loved to do political theater and avant-garde mm-hmm. theater. That's that's what I was really into. Um, so. Um, so I thought that could be a good life for myself, you know, and, and, and so that's what I did. Um, and then, so I studied the humanities first before I studied business or, but I was selling weed in the dorms and I was building my weed business. So I was kind of doing both at the same time, but it's funny, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. But the, but the, the, the business part of my life, the weed business part of my life was just this thing I was doing because. I love to smoke weed, and, and, and it was the only way to smoke a lot of weed. You had to sell some. Um, uh, but my main thing was acting and theater. That was my main thing. The business thing is just a necessary evil I have to do because I, I, I was a young man. I, I was a revolutionary and an anarchist, and I hated money, and I hated commerce, and I thought it was wrong, and, you know, I was one of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Then you do business for a while, and you realize, hey, business is good. <laughs> <laughs> this works. Um, uh, you can, you know, I mean, it's good to have some resources. You can change people more. You can have more of an impact and affect things differently. And as my weed business grew, I, I began to see that, and I'm like, oh, wow, I can take money I'm making from weed, and I can go do plays. And so I did that for a while, and I, I financed my own little plays and these all these little theaters in California and um, sell weed to all the actors and all the people in my little community. And um, But then our weed business, and I started working with my brother, and we had this hemp company, and things just started to grow and grow and grow and grow. And I realized that the cannabis business and the cannabis movement was giving me more meaning and joy than the theater was. Uh, and in fact, the theater was really hard because I was, I was one of the few people in the American theater that just loved weed so much that was, <laughs> you know, doing it all the time, talking about it all the time is a little bit awkward. Because um, uh, at that time, it, it, it was considered, it wasn't considered a, a professional thing to do. Um, uh, so... So I eventually committed to the cannabis trail, um, and then as I became more and more successful in cannabis business, particularly the business side, and I had to run bigger organizations and Harborside and all that, my work in the humanities came to be key to my development as a leader, uh, because the cannabis industry has so many constraints, right? Whether it's banking or 280E or the high taxes or the ridiculous regulations or the licensing application or the uh, whatever it is, right? And whenever you're in an environment that's got a lot of constraint in it um, and a lot of obstacles in it, uh, what you need to get through that is a good connection with other people that you're working with. 
uh, and the humanities allows that to happen. When you do plays and when you do films, you have to connect with people emotionally and spiritually because the work is too hard and too vulnerable um, not to. Uh, and you have to have sort of a deep level of engagement with people in order to put on something as complex as a Shakespeare play or an opera or, um, or a film or a movie. Um, uh, it takes just a very deep level of interpersonal engagement um, to do that kind of work. And, and, and so I was able to take tools I learned in theater and film and humanities and apply them as a manager for managing the day-to-day of Harborside um, and uh, over the years developed my own sort of leadership method and methodology, sort of combining the best things I learned from business with some of the best things I learned from the humanities uh, to um, create what I call impactful leadership, um, leadership that, that, that makes people feel like they're part of something larger, like you said, and something meaningful and that, you know, they, they, they get out of bed in the morning, excited to come to work. Uh, We spend so much of our lives at work. My God, it, it needs to be fun. It needs to be exciting. It needs to have meaning. It needs to, it needs to get you going. It needs to, you know, make you feel good. Um, so it actually has served me very, very well, even though the decision to leave the theater and, and commit full-time to cannabis um, as a younger man was a really hard decision, and I went through some grief and suffering there. Um, but, you know, I got to do Weed Wars, um, and so... Uh, and I get to do a lot of things in media and speaking and, and, and like this podcast right now. So yeah. <laughs> all, of, all of my experiences has led me to be who I am and what I'm about right now. And so I'm grateful that I, that I studied theater because it's coming in handy uh, as I grow this cannabis business and as we all grow the movement and the industry together. Yeah, and... You know, that brings up something that I say to myself all the time, which is everything is here to help you, you know, and the world works in mysterious ways. But like you said, you know, if you want to be a good leader, you have to be able to have that emotional investment with the people you work with, because in order to really be able to vibe with them, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, you really need to be able to actually reach them and really, you know, get through to them in a way that makes them feel valued. And I think, like you said, we spend so much of our time at work in our lives and so many people go home with just a feeling of inadequacy and a feeling of not being, you know, not having a good meaning in life. And I know that that's something that, you know, I've felt in the past and yet another reason why I'm so glad I'm in the cannabis, you know, uh, world these days because, you know, I find that, you know, as a whole, people are more conscious and more mindful and just more aware of the fact that, you know, we should all have fun together. You know, we can make money, we can do all these things, but really at the end of the day, if you're not having fun, then what are you really doing, you know? And, um, you know, it's funny because I know you guys went recreational, um, you know, uh, at Harborside. What have been some of the biggest shifts you've had to take in going from medical to recreational? I know you're in four, you know, four locations now, too. Yeah, well, I like to call it adult use, not recreational. Okay. Yep. Um, um, well, it's a big shift in California. Uh, adult use, the framework for adult use is poorly designed, the legal framework. Yeah. Uh, so the medical framework was actually pretty well designed. Um, and so under the medical framework, you had about at least 3,000 dispensaries in California all open 
uh, not all of them licensed, but all, you know, acting as if they were. Yeah, operating. The only reason they, <laughs> operating. The only yeah. reason they weren't was because local people refused to do licensing. Um, uh, but, um, and then, and we had, you know, you could be uh, a mom and pop person who made literally a, a, a weed brownie in your kitchen. You could bring it in the Harborside if you had the right packaging and you're willing to have Harborside lab test it, you could get on our shelves. And if our customers liked it, you could sell thousands of units a month on our shelves. And if that happened, you could make a good living for you and your family. You could be an um, entrepreneur, and, you know. Yes, yeah. and there were, and we, we had hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of people just like that in our supply chain for many, many years. Adult use wiped all that out, uh, and we went from 3,000 dispensaries to about 400, um, and we had all those mom and pops did not have the resources to meet all the new regulatory requirements, and you could no longer make an edible in your home kitchen. You had to go to a commercial kitchen and all these other things. So it really hurt the supply chain. Um, and then, of course, they decide to tax cannabis uh, to the point where um, customers, particularly patients, particularly heavy consumers, have absolutely no choice but to go back to the illicit market. Yeah. Um, the price of cannabis went up, oh, 50 to 150 percent, depending on what terrible tax rate the municipality you live in decided to do. Um, so it's been very painful uh, since yeah. adult use and even uh, and, and Harborside's struggled and we've all we've, we've managed to open two, two new shops during adult use so that's good um, but you know we've had to boy we've had we've had a lot of really hard decisions to make um, to survive just that contraction in the market um, uh, uh, and so it's been hard uh, to say the least out here in California uh, since adult use and I'm sorry to say it seems like all the same mistakes are being made by other people now Illinois is taxing oh, products way way too much it's crazy way too much Crazy. Uh, Michigan, 78% of Michigan banned it. Uh, the oh local God. people banned it. 60% of California banned it. I don't know if the locals can still ban in Massachusetts. Do they, they can. Can they yep. ban there now? Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. I don't know the percentage offhand, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, cities banned. and towns. There's a lot of bans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. You, you Again, you change the They said all we had to do is change the law. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, like, no, um, no, you should have read the fine print, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not quite the case. So yeah. it just teaches us the struggle just is ongoing, right? And, yeah. and, 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 and what's a real shame about it is most of these bans are being, ha are being acted by Democrats, not Republicans. And, I know. And so-called so liberal people and progressive people. Um, um, so that is a little bit alarming to me. Um, uh, but... Um, so it's been hard, man. Uh, and, and, and I hope that everybody can learn the lesson that, you know, you can't overregulate, you can't overtax, you can't ban, you can't, you know, all of these things just, uh, you know, I, it, 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 if, if something doesn't change out here in California, I mean, the whole industry 
it, it could collapse or just become an oligarchy um, uh, 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 because something just has to give. There's just there's just too 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 much activity in the illicit market, and not enough in the in the legal market. Um, so yeah, yeah. And um, so wherever you are out there, if you're thinking about legalizing cannabis. Don't do it like California. <laughs> do it right. <laughs> it's, you know, it's crazy because I've heard that from a lot of my friends that live in California and, you know, work in the industry out there that really Prop 64 just did a lot more harm than good. And, you know, it kind of makes me nervous because, you know, I know federal legalization is eventually going to happen also, you know, and so it's been talked about more and more. And so what is your viewpoint on the current political situation in regards to federal legalization? I mean, do you think it's close? And if so, what are your main concerns or hopes for when it does take place? Well, it depends on who wins the election. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like Bernie's. Bernie's got a very good plan. Yeah. Um, some of the other plans are good too. I I, I like Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. and her plan. Um, I haven't decided who I'm going to vote for yet or endorse. Yeah. Um, but you know, if Bernie wins or someone like Warren wins, man, we're legal pretty quick. I mean, yeah. Bernie's talking. Bernie's talking day one. <laughs> that's what it I should mean, be. He's talking <laughs> day. Yes, that's one reason I I am compelled to to give him my vote. Um, um, I'm, I still haven't made that decision, but, you know, it's a compelling argument he's making if you're a one-issue voter like I am. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so, um, um, so if he wins, I'm very optimistic. What I'm not so optimistic is what happens when it, 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 all, it comes down to the local level and it comes down to the details, you know, like taxes. Um, um, Bernie is not going to be like, well, we shouldn't tax it. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, You know, uh, he's probably going to be like, they can afford it. Tax it. Um, uh, So uh, so I worry about that. I worry about the FDA. I worry about, you know, know, it's got to come off the Controlled Substances Act. It can't be like Schedule 2 or 3. That'll be a disaster. It has to come off completely. Yeah. Have to come off completely, and then you know you worry about just all these crazy absurdities that have happened in the regulations in other places. You just think about, wow, that's not even the federal government getting a hold of it, and it's pretty absurd and crazy, yeah. right? I um, agree more. Uh, what happens? If, you know, are they going to say, "Well, yeah, we'll legalize it, but you can't have anything more than five percent THC"? Thank you. <laughs> have a nice day. Um, <laughs> right? You're so right. You're so right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so you know, I so I worry about the details. I worry about the taxes, um, and and I worry about the regulations. I worry about overdoing it. Um, and I and and I particularly worry about the regular every, everyday everyday people, the entrepreneurs, the mom and pops, the small family farmers, the legacy people getting locked out of the industry, um, um, or consumers getting locked out of the industry with these crazy bans and, and so forth. Uh, uh, so it may actually be more useful to us for us to keep rebranding cannabis as good for a couple more years. Yeah. Um, um, And then maybe that branding energy could influence some of these details like taxes and regulations a little bit. 
Um, so I could, act, even though I have to say as an activist, I want federal legalization yesterday and certainly tomorrow, but just as a strategist, you know, I've seen some terrible things happen with these, some of these details we're talking about and I worry. So yeah, I lose sleep over that. Yeah. And let's and, see. And, and I have to wrap up, Ryan. Yeah, no worries. Is that okay? Yeah, that's totally okay. Yep. And I'm sorry, uh, I got another. No, no worries. I think uh, the last question I had for you um, was, what was your goal with the uh, ultimate goal with the Last Prisoner Project? I know that's something you and Steve are really proud of, and I had the chance to meet Steve out in Vegas this year, and you know he spoke very highly of the project. And like I said, I had done a, you know, a, my own expungement event with my colleague out here in Massachusetts. And um, so, what's your ultimate goal with the Last Prisoner Project? Get every single cannabis prisoner on earth out of prison Hell and, yeah. reintegr- and reintegrate into society. Hell Very yeah. simple mission. Yeah. Very simple mission. That's we're not awesome. trying to solve, you know, that's all we're trying to do is get them out, reintegrate them to society. I'm not trying to get every drug conviction on. I'm just cannabis. It's just cannabis prisoners. Get them out. Get them reintegrated into society. And I'm talking globally everywhere on earth. So it's going to take a while. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it's a big mission. But it's 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 what could be more important. Again, what could be more meaningful? I mean, Michael Thompson. Michael Thompson. He's locked up in Michigan. He's been in there 26 years. We're trying to get him clemency from the governor right now. He might get sprung. Literally any week now, he could get sprung. That's um, awesome. The governor. The governor is looking at it. Okay, that's that would be our first lifer that we get out. Um, and just imagine how good it will feel if you or me, any of us who are donors or, 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 or founders or, or board members of the Last Prisoner Project, how good it's going to feel to get him out, shake his hand, give him the keys to his apartment that he's going to walk into uh, that we're going to get for him, um, and start his life all over again. Yeah, um, so that's, that's the mission, and lastprisonerproject.org is my plug for it. I hope your listeners will come check us out and uh, if you can't donate, let us know if you want to volunteer and we'll we'll engage. That's awesome, man. And, you know, I, I can't thank you enough again. You know, guys, you better believe I was excited beyond words to have a pioneer in the cannabis industry like Andrew D'Angelo, Grace Highly Optimized, with all he's done for the movement as a whole. Reach out to him, follow him, and definitely keep a close eye on him because there's no doubt in my mind that Andrew will continue to help make the world of cannabis and the world at large a brighter, better place. Thank you so much again, Andrew. Seriously, this has been amazing. And, you know, I hope we get to reconnect again and do round two. <laughs> yeah, man, anytime, Ryan. Thank you, and thank you, Highly Optimized team, for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you Have so much. Day. Thank you, you too, man. All right. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys, so once again, that was Andrew D'Angelo from The Last Prisoner Project. Reach out to him, follow him, find him on Instagram, find him on Twitter. He's an amazing individual, and really, you know, he's the change we all want to see in the cannabis industry as a whole. So until next time, my friends, be well and namaste. Peace. What is up, everybody? 
I hope you are all enjoying the show, and I wanted to stop by real quick and share a little bit about our latest podcast sponsor, Freedom Builders. Now, Freedom Builders are a team of graphic designers, website creators, videographers, social media marketing experts, and coaches that build out your custom online business from A to Z. This is a done-for-you service, which means they do the work for you while you get to put your focus back on what you love most, which is coaching your clients and bringing in sales. Now, as a former online fitness coach, Mike knows where your struggle points are and exactly how to help you overcome them. This is why he created Freedom Builders, so that you can scale your business while protecting your time and your energy. Now, you guys know that delegation is a business superpower, and you can activate this superpower today by scheduling a complimentary call with Mike at freedombuilders, with a Z on the end, dot com, so you can start building the freedom that allows you to take your business to the next level. Alex and I recently connected with Freedom Builders for our Connect with Cannabis build-out, and we could not have been happier with the results. With Mike and his team, they were able to go through an outline and create a personalized program for our experience, develop our brand identity, build and design a custom-branded webpage, professionally edit our program video content, custom design all of our slide presentations, automate our email marketing sequences, create a seamless payment system for our offer, design unique infographics for our social media content, and guide us through our proven launch blueprint to generate organic leads through our social media. So if you're a coach, facilitator, or healer listening to this ad right now, and you are looking to put freedom back into your life, once again, go to freedombuilders, with a Z on the end, .com, and book your complimentary call today. I hope you all enjoy the rest of the show, and I'm wishing you the best day ever.